Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. That's who my God is. He's a miracle worker. Do you believe in miracles? While we were singing, just a flood of memories as a testimony was just kind of flooding through my brain. I've seen some miracles in my life, in the lives of people that I know and love. I've seen tumors and cancer disappear. I've seen the broken healed. I've seen marriages redeemed and restored. I've experienced that moment where you need a certain dollar amount and it shows up to the penny. Our God is a miracle worker. Uh, We're entering into a, a series called Impossible as we explore and just celebrate the way that our God makes the impossible possible. Our, our God is a, a miracle worker. If you walk through the Gospels, in addition to the big three, uh, the birth of Jesus, the resurrection, and the ascension, in addition to that, there are 34 miracles attributed to Jesus in the Gospels. Now, in the Gospel of John, seven of those miracles appear as signs that point to just who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what God is doing. And the God of the Gospels that did those 34 miracles, who was sent his son to be God in the flesh, who anointed Jesus, fully human, fully divine, to make a way for us where there was no way, the God who did the miracles then is the same God now, and he's the same God that will be here tomorrow. He will still be a miracle worker. The problem is that so many of us, we struggle to really trust and believe in miracles. Why? Well, by definition, a miracle is something that goes against the laws of nature and seems to defy logic. And so when we see something extraordinary happen, our first thought is not to go to a miracle, but we try to make sense of it because our whole world We see it and feel and experience it through the laws of nature, through logic, and and we don't know what to do when it goes outside of that. And we have to acknowledge that that there are people in the world who would do so-called miracles, not because they're real and true miracles, but for their own gain. And it makes it hard to really trust and believe. But if you've ever really experienced a true miracle of God... It would take more faith to deny that than it would to believe that God just showed up and moved in a way that I could never do. That's beyond just coincidence. It's beyond circumstance. There's there's no way to explain it other than the God of the universe just stepped into my world. And we're going to explore the way God continues to move and miracles in our lives and the people around us to show who Jesus is, show what God wants to do, and to invite us into him. So we're going to look through these seven signs, these seven miracles in John's gospel. And we're going to start with the first one in t- today, John chapter 2, as Jesus turns water to wine. John chapter 2, we'll start in verse 1. On the third day, 
A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brother. Hello? Hello? There we go. All right. We're not going to let technical issues slow us down this morning. We got some, a word from God to hear, don't we? Let me pick up. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers, and his disciples there stayed for a few days. Now, let me say a, a quick word about the Gospel of John before we dive into this particular story. Because John wrote his Gospel long after we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As John is writing the words, remembering this, this life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are already circulating through the churches. And so John's got a different purpose. He doesn't want to just reiterate words that were already said, but he wants to point toward a bigger reality with everything that he writes. And so John's gospel is full of symbolism, but not symbolism in the sense of a fairy tale or that he made it up, but it's John's writing a historical account of these things really happened, and he writes it in such a way of writing truth to point toward a bigger truth. And with all seven of these signs, these miracles of Jesus, John is pointing toward two significant realities that are even greater than the moment that John's writing about. With every miracle that John records, he's pointing to two things. Number one, Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh, fully human, fully divine, sent into the world to usher in the kingdom of God, to bear our sin, to take our sin, die on the cross, go into the grave. Three days later, he would rise again. And with every miracle... John writes, he is, he is testifying to the reality, to the truth, that Jesus could do these things because he was the one who created the world. He could defy logic. He could defy the rules of nature because he brought nature into being and there was nothing that was greater than him. 
And John wants to drive that reality home. Second, John wants to build the faith of all those who would follow Jesus. The purpose is we read through the Gospel of John, and I would encourage you to read along with us, follow along in in this uh, uh, reading guide that we've given you, because I hope that it would build our faith. How many of us know that there are moments in life where you're going through uh, the junk of life, and you're going through the things and the responsibilities and all that weighs us down? Sometimes it's just hard to continue to trust. And so as a follower of Jesus, sometimes I need that boost of encouragement to remember that that God is still good and God is still for me. And Jesus will show up in my life. He'll show up in your life. And he'll say, don't give up. Keep moving. Keep trusting me. I'm not done with you yet. So John is pointing toward these bigger realities. And we see symbolism jump off, off the page with every turn. So we walk through this story, it begins, it says that Jesus shows up at a wedding on the third day. Now many of us, we've read the end of the story, we know what happens on the third day. We know that it was on the third day that Jesus said, the tomb is not my home, the tomb cannot hold me, but he rose from the dead. And as he rose from the dead, not only did he defeat sin and death, but he ushers in life to you and me. That we know we have an eternity with God because of what Jesus did. And that one day, Jesus is going to come again, and we're going to be reunited, and the church, that's you and me, will be the bride of Christ. And so already, John is pointing toward the larger truth, the bigger reality that's yet to come. And so Jesus and his disciples find himself at a wedding. Somebody pointed out to me after the early service, it's pretty funny, uh, that it was only after Jesus and his crew showed up at the wedding that they ran out of wine. But they show up at the wedding, and sure enough, they run out of wine. And so Mary, with the compassionate heart that she has, she comes to Jesus and she says, Hey, look around. There's no more wine for the party. Now, this wasn't just a party foul. This was a big deal. Because in the first century, to run out of wine, not only was that an embarrassment, but it would have been a huge source of shame for the family that they might never have gotten over. And so Mary says, Jesus... Can you do something about it? And she invites him in to the need. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Sometimes the most important thing that I can do is just to invite Jesus into the need. And I love this this conversation that Mary has with Jesus. She invites him into the need and he says, listen, my time has not yet come indicating that there is a time to come, that God has a plan and a purpose for him, that something greater is to come, but it's in God's timing. How much of the time do we struggle because it's in God's timing? God, why can't you just make it in my timing? But Mary doesn't argue with him. She doesn't say, Jesus, remember who your mother is. She didn't say, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. She just turns to the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you. She knew her part was to invite him into the need. And that whatever he would do would be the best thing. 
Whatever he would do would be the right thing. Whatever he would do would be the thing that needed to happen. And she could trust him with that. And so all she did was invite him into the need and she let him take it from there. What would it look like for you and me to live our lives that way? To just say, God, here's my need. Here's where I'm broken. Here's where I need you to intervene in my life. God, here's where I've reached the end of my rope and I can't go any further and I don't know what to do next. God, would you just show up? Would you do a miracle in my life? Would you do a miracle in me? And that's what Mary does. She just invites him in. Maybe she knew the heart of Jesus. Maybe she heard his words, but she knew what was underneath. The compassion, because sure enough, Jesus turns to the servants and he begins to give them instructions. And I love how it indicates this this truth, this character of God, that yes, we know that there's nothing so great that is uh, beyond the power of God, but also there's nothing so small beyond the compassion and the heart of God. And so he turns to the servants and, and he points to these water jars now, the, the gospel writer tells us that these water jars, again, symbolism jumping off the page, were the water jars that they used to, to have ceremonial cleansing. And what we can look for here is to understand that, yes, they had a, a way, a pattern, a behavior to try to bring ceremonial cleansing for what was on the outside, but Jesus was about to point away toward a greater cleansing than anything that they could ever imagine. Not through a, a ritual and a routine, but by the very power of God. And so he says to the servants, go and and fill those water jars with water. Now, this would not have been an easy task. I want you to see a picture. If you go to modern-day Cana today, you can see what's most likely one of the six water jars. And if I were to stand next to that uh, stone jar there, it would come almost up to shoulder height on me. And this is a massive jar. Uh, The text says it would hold up to 20 to 30 gallons. Can you imagine how many trips it would have taken to fill that up? But in their obedience and just doing what Jesus told them to do, they would experience, they would see a miracle. See, here's a truth for all of us. You can write this down. The first to see the miracles of God are the servants of God. The first to see the miracles of Jesus are the ones who are the servants of Jesus. It it was the servants. Did you catch in the story, they bring the wine to the master of ceremonies? And it says, he didn't know where the wine came from, but the servants did. The servants knew. Because the miracle happened in their hands. It's the servants of Jesus that are on the front line that that see God move. If you want to see miracles in and around your life, then the call upon us is to go to God and say, My God, my life does not belong to me. You have ransomed me. You have bought me. I belong to you, and there is nothing I could ever do to measure up to you, and so you can have it all. And whatever the question is, God, the answer is yes, I am your servant. And not just in the walls of this building, but we would understand that we, are, we don't go to church, but we are the church. And so I'm a servant to my wife or my husband. I'm a servant to my kids. I'm a servant to my parents. I'm a servant at work. I'm a servant in my neighborhood. I'm a servant when I go to school. I'm a servant in every place that God sends me. And as a servant of Jesus, I'm going to see the miracles of Jesus. 
And there's a huge truth here that we do not need to miss. See, the servants didn't argue with Jesus. If I, I really feel like if I'd been in that moment, and Jesus, uh, we say, we need wine, and Jesus says, well, go fill the water jars, I probably would have said, wait, time out, Jesus. You didn't hear me. I don't need water. I need wine. Don't tell me to go fill up the jars with water. I need you to go get some wine and make this thing happen. But that's not what they did. They just obeyed. Now, how is it they could just blindly obey? This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. But there was a trust and there was a faith in these servants that came not from what Jesus could produce, but it was the power was in his presence. And if we would be willing to seek the face of God, then we will see the hand of God. But so much of the time we flip it, at least I do, and, and I get so fixated on what I think or what I want God to do for me that I miss where God already is and the miracle that he's already, already doing in me and how he's trying to position me for what, the greater things that he wants to do. And I completely miss what God is trying to lead me to, trying to do, because I'm just focused on the production. And Jesus is inviting me in to say, no, 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 seek my face. Follow me. Follow me and I will lead you to the greater things. And so they just obey. And then the miracle happens in their hands. They see the move of God. Would we be willing to take the risk and say, God, I will follow you. I will let you lead. And then we wait. But what do we do in the meantime? Because I would suggest that much of our life is lived in the meantime. We pray and we wait. We cry out to God and we wait. We worship and we wait. We, we come to God and we say, God, would you see my need? Would you see my brokenness? Would you see the circumstance? Would you see what they did to me, God? Would you see what I'm walking through? And then we wait. What do we do in the meantime? What we see here is that what we do while we're waiting for a miracle is we bring what we have all the way to Jesus. We bring it all the way. I, this, this was not an easy task for the servants to fill the, these massive Six of them, massive water jars. And it says they filled it to the brim. I, I'm not sure if I had been carrying those, those jars or those buckets or whatever it was they had of water to fill that massive thing up. I'm not sure I wouldn't have gotten halfway and be like, you know, it's probably good enough. Now, how much of our life is spent in the good enough? Or, or maybe, I'll, you know, maybe I'll fill it two-thirds of the way. That's probably good enough. No, it says they filled it to the brim. And because they filled it to the brim, Jesus transformed it to the brim. Whatever I bring to Jesus, His promise is that He will transform it. He will breathe life into it. He, he will make it new. And so it stands to reason that if Jesus is going to take whatever I bring to Him and He's going to transform it for His glory and my good, then I'm going to bring it all to Jesus. We don't live our lives that way. 
And most of the time we're like, okay, I'm going to bring this half to Jesus and you transform it. But, but I kind of like this mess over here. I like living with this junk over here and I'm going to hang on to it, Jesus, for just a little bit longer. Or we take that little piece of our life and we kind of tuck it away in that dark place of our heart and we lock it up and we throw away the key. Why? Because it hurts and it's painful and it's difficult to deal with that. It's difficult to, to lay it on the altar of trust and say, Jesus, you can do more with this than I could ever do. But if I would just bring it to him, if I could fill it to the brim, Jesus will transform it to the brim. And the reason that we do that it's because with the miracles of Jesus, what he does here, what he's willing to do in our lives, the work that Jesus does is always better than anything I could do. There's no exceptions. It's not 99 times out of 100. 100 times out of 100, what Jesus does in me and through me, it's better than anything that I could ever do. I love this. Bring the wine to the master ceremonies. And he's just dumbfounded. What are you doing? Everybody else, they wait for everybody to, basically what he's saying is, everybody, a normal person would wait until they don't even know what they're drinking anymore, and then they bring out the cheap stuff. But you brought out the cheap stuff, and now you brought off the, out the best. And it was obviously better than whatever else they had. What Jesus does in you and me, what he does through us, is obviously better than anything that we could do on our own, and that is on purpose. It is by design. What Jesus wants to do in you and through you is obviously better than anything you can manufacture. It's better than any degree you could get or any reputation you could have or any effort you could put forward. Jesus would do in you is better than what you can do in yourself. Why? Because he wants to see and what he does, his love, and his power, and his grace. He wants us to see that. And what's more, he wants the people around us to see in us his love, his power, and his grace. You see, the problem is not just one of stubbornness, that I think I can do it on my own that you're holding out from yourself what God wants to do in you. What's at stake is the witness that Jesus wants to bring through you. That others would see the obviously better in you that comes from God. It's no coincidence that Jesus, to begin his ministry, took water and made it wine. Because three years later, Jesus took a cup of wine and he lifted it and he said, this is my blood. Blood is the life source. The transformation that God wants to do in us is he wants to bring his life into us. Not behavior, not a bullet point of beliefs. He wants to bring his life into you and to me. And if we continue to hold back that piece of us 
then we'll miss the fullness of what God wants to do. There might be some of us here this morning, maybe you're watching online, and, and the reality is, is that you've always kept God at a place where you can control Him based on what you do and what you believe. And what Jesus is calling you is to say, I don't want you, you to hold me at a distance. I don't want you to control me. It's not about your behavior. I want to breathe life into you. I want to set you free if you will trust in me. And he would give us the greatness of who he is. Not, not fancy cars and big houses and, and nice clothes. What he wants to give us is purpose. He wants to give us love. He wants to give us grace. He wants to, to bring us uh, his, the fullness of, of his passion. He wants to give us real relationships with others that is not based on our manipulation of one another or what we can do, but the identity that I have in Christ. He wants to give me a hope and a future that is bigger than anything I might walk through in this life. It is the greatest miracle that God would ever do is to take our death, dead in sin, dead in our brokenness, dead in our rejection of God, and he would turn it to life. Water to wine. Wine to blood. Blood to life. So this morning, we're, we gather around his table to remember the gift that God has given. It was on the night that before Jesus was to give up his life for us that Jesus took the bread of the Passover meal, which, by the way, was the meal where they remembered the this greatness of God's power to save and to set them free from bondage because God knows that we live in bondage. And in the meal, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it thanks to you, Father. He gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. And then he broke from the liturgy of that meal and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. At the end of the meal, he took the cup and he gave thanks to you, Father. And he gave it to the disciples and again, he broke from the liturgy and he took this cup, which was the cup of suffering, and he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take and drink, for this is now my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus gives his body, his blood, water to wine, wine to blood, blood to life. What we receive.